0: Welcome to Women Who Move Nations, the public transport podcast, where we interview our industry's top female executives from Australia, New Zealand, and around the world. I'm Michelle Batsis, your host and the Chief Executive Officer of the Public Transport Association, Australia, New Zealand. We're raising the voices of women for everyone who works in public transport and mobility, and particularly for any of our listeners who are early in their transport careers and looking for inspiration. Each of our guests shares her views on the future of public transport and provides insights into their career journeys. Make sure you follow Women Who Move Nations on your favorite podcast platform and rate the show to help more people find us. You can also join our community on LinkedIn by searching Public Transport Association Australia New Zealand. We're also on Twitter at PTAANZ underscore, or visit us at www.ptaanz.org. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks for tuning in for another episode of Women Who Move Nations, the podcast for women in public transport. I'm Michelle Batsis, and I'm absolutely delighted to be joined today by Julie Mitchell. She is the Deputy Director General of Policy Planning and Investment at Queensland's Department of Transport and Main Roads. Hi, Julie, and welcome. Hi, Michelle. Thank you. So Julie, I'm so excited to get into the interview today. You're in one of the top transport jobs in Queensland. And by way of introduction, could you tell us about your current role and how you came to be the Deputy Director General in the Department of Transport and Main Roads?
1: Sure, thanks Michelle. Um, As Deputy Director General, I'm a member of Queensland Transport and Main Roads Executive Leadership Team. Um, I report to the Director General and lead division, um, including transport policy, multimodal um, transport strategy and planning, and investment prioritisation and governance. And I have about 650 staff. Maria compiles the uh, $26.9 billion statewide transport infrastructure investment program that covers all transport modes like rail, road, cycling, walking, and capital operations and asset management investments. My area does all the property resumptions for projects and is facilitating Inland Rail in Queensland. It also develops our Queensland transport strategy, which is our 30 year strategic vision and um, statewide and regional plans and strategies for asset management, customer engagement, investment, freight, public transport, rail, cycling and walking. We also um, put together policies for net zero emissions vehicles and our net zero emissions um, transport roadmap. I've held several positions in transport and main roads in uh, planning projects and networks and in policy and strategy um, and compiling investment programs, uh, particularly in metropolitan region. And so applying for this position seemed logical when it became vacant.
0: Wow, Julie, you have a huge portfolio. I didn't actually realize with 650 staff, but also the breadth and depth of uh the portfolio responsibilities you have. Uh and I wanted to actually ask you a bit more about the future direction of the transport system in Queensland. And obviously in that policy and planning space, um, that's where a big focus would be. And I know you're a champion for innovation as well. And so just in your job, you've kind of given us the the canvas of the landscape that you're looking at. What are your current priorities in your role? And can you share with us Queensland's longer term vision for public transport?
1: Sure. In Queensland, our vision is for a single integrated transport network accessible to everyone. Transport is an enabler, of course. It's not an outcome in itself and it is critical to support economic and social outcomes. And it plays a fundamental role in shaping a city's land use and development. Regarding our priorities, um, we focus our planning on connecting communities to ensure both safe, convenient accessibility for people and efficient movement of goods. There are balancing considerations around efficiency and productivity, as well as access and social justice. Looking at the long-term vision, it's no underestimate to say that the scale and complexity of transformation predicted to occur in the transport sector worldwide over the next 30 years is unprecedented. In all sectors, technology is driving innovation, opportunity, and transformation. But in the transport sector in particular, advances are characterised by a high rate of technological change. And examples include new and emerging technologies like um, electric, hydrogen powered and autonomous vehicles, and the the availability of real-time data, which will um, assist in achieving an efficient, affordable and accessible transport system. To prepare for the changes that are occurring around us, we've done some research, some scenario planning, some transport modeling and economic evaluation in order to develop our long-term transport vision. And from a societal perspective, the preferred future scenario is one with lower costs and emissions, with greater safety, personalisation, efficiency and convenience. This scenario includes high capacity public transport as a predominant mode that's well integrated with other modes. In our capital city region of southeast Queensland, where more than two thirds of the state's population lives, an increase of an additional two million people is forecast over the next 20 years. And this growth will of course have a significant impact on our transport system and means that public transport will play an increasingly important role particularly high frequent high capacity links rail will be the backbone of southeast queensland's transport network it will be the heavy lifter for passenger movement and it's the cornerstone of our vision for southeast queensland we expect that in the future more people will travel to work in the brisbane cbd by rail than any other mode and to achieve this, we're planning to make rail services more frequent, more reliable, and faster. At the heart of this is our Cross for Rail project on schedule to be operating by mid 2020. It'll be, have a significant impact on how the rest of the Southeast Queensland transport network operates and offer a unique opportunity for network reform and revitalisation, unlocking the bottleneck that's currently at the heart of our network and underpinning a signature coast to coast connection Crossrail Rail opens further opportunities and we're planning to ensure that we can fully capitalise on the capacity improvements the project will bring when it's operational. In our future scenario, autonomous and zero emission vehicles would be shared and seamlessly integrated with public transport. And customers, customers will be able to purchase a subscription across multiple transport services that meets their travel needs and lifestyles. Of course, the new emerging trend towards mobility as a service would be highly personalized and provide integrated journey planning, booking, and payments. Increasingly, services would be accessible online and mobility would be available on demand. Journeys would be seamlessly integrated across car, bus, rail, ferry, and possibly even air travel, and walking and bike riding would increase in importance. As part of an integrated transport system of the future, and would be as attractive as using other modes of transport, connecting people with places locally, supporting healthy and active lifestyles and creating livable, accessible communities. And that's our preferred vision for the longer term transport in Queensland.
0: Julie, that's actually such an incredible vision. And I haven't heard it articulated in that way before. And it's so exciting to hear that a government authority is willing to set a vision for the state right and particularly that southeast Queensland Um, corridor where as you said uh, you've got such an increase in population forecast Um, so I've got to say very excited to hear I mean you mentioned the cross river rail project and you know we we know that's going to completely transform the way people move around Brisbane I know there's a smart ticketing trial going on in the Gold Coast as well before the rollout of a major ticketing transformation and of course you've already alluded to the advancements in technology for example with um, integrating zero emission buses into fleet. I wanted to ask in the context of all of this innovation and desire to really improve the network for everyone where do you get your inspiration from and you know we are UITP we're connected to global members around the world I wanted to ask you do you look to other jurisdictions in our region as well as globally for that inspiration to see what are the trends and what's coming next.
1: I'm really passionate about innovation, Michelle, um, as it really provides uh, opportunities to create a better future now and for generations to come. It allows us to make change in order to remain relevant. And, um, of course, we formally research and scan the environment, both locally and globally, um, looking for what's happening and what they are doing that um, is leading edge. But in an organisation that embraces innovation, all our staff need to be looking for trends and opportunities And we welcome industry and others when they come to us and tell us what they or others are doing. And um, my area connects them and ensures they get to talk to the right people in transport and main roads so that we um, can see if it will help us and improve how we do things. And my priority as innovation champion is to make innovation an everyday activity. We're doing some really leading work in electric vehicles with the electric vehicle superhighway, and connected and autonomous vehicles with our trial added Ipswich, in digital license, smart ticketing and data integration. But innovation doesn't mean large scale or high cost activities. It can be as simple as process improvement that saves time. For example, removing a redundant approval process, digitizing a previously um, paper-based process, bringing new technology into link offices in the field with more data, Or improving the information we have for decision making, these are all small but priceless changes. I'm focused on giving people permission and the tools to innovate, bringing ideas in and celebrating our success stories.
0: That's really inspiring to hear, Julie. And I love that you're the innovation champion. I think it's such an important role. And it's great to hear that perspective of, you know, it could be a technological advancement, but it could just be that simple process improvement as well uh, for how we work, right? So I think that's really important knowing that public transport is in a position where we know that it's vital for the sustainability and livability of our cities and regions, um, but also has been really impacted by COVID-19 and what we've seen is a reduction in ridership levels in cities across the world. And so I wanted to actually talk a little bit now about COVID-19 and its impacts on public transport. You know, it's a pandemic that certainly has disrupted the way that everyone moves around uh, their cities and towns and suburbs. And I wanted to ask you, given that you're in a space where you are looking at that future and that focus on what's ahead, what do you think some of the key mobility trends will be? uh, And how do you think COVID-19 has perhaps impacted those trends and, and, what were you, and what you were thinking before then?
1: Okay, society um, has really had a turbulent few years with uh, both climate and social activism and then a pandemic thrown into the mix. So we've spent time um, to understand the travel behaviour impacts of COVID-19 and reflect these changes within existing mechanisms for our policy, system, our policy settings, network planning and decisions about investment. Um, It's good to see that recovery is evident in Queensland and recent trends observed through the pandemic, such as working from home and shifting from public transport, are really interesting. I think increased work from home, at least part-time, will endure as a one-off but ongoing adjustment in demand. But the move back to the office seems to be faster than the move back to public transport, and the trend during COVID restrictions toward increased private uh, vehicle mode share continues. Some people bought cars in 2020 that hadn't previously owned one. They've enjoyed low cost parking in the CBD and cheap fuel. And of course, um, peak hour congestion will grow if the shift to private vehicles continues. Increasing demand on our road network has obvious performance implications for congestion, journey times and productivity. I suspect it will be road congestion and poor travel reliability that drives commuters back to public transport and reverses the trend. We've observed a steady increase in active transport during COVID and we're hoping to embed these new habits post COVID. COVID's recently been described as a a liminal moment in time, sort of like moving through a COVID corridor from one room to a different room. I think it's the start of a transition and the longer term impacts are likely to be very significant. But we just don't know what the next room looks like. I think there'll be greater emphasis on connections and not just transport connections. These will be about how people engage with each other and their environment. And we are scanning and preparing for the change. It's likely to bring forward some of the aspects of our preferred future scenario.
0: Wow, that's awesome to hear. I mean, I've got to say, it breaks my heart knowing that there are people who last year in 2020 bought cars who never owned one before. Um, but I think you're right on the money. The increasing congestion that we're already seeing with uh, mode shift in in different cities, both in Australia and the, and around the world. I think the congestion will get to a point where people will. Have to get back on the train or, or the bus or their light rail connection, um, you know, just out of the necessary convenience to get where they want to go. So Julie, I now wanted to change the direction of our conversation actually and invite you to share more about your professional journey. I know you're a registered professional engineer and fellow of Engineers Australia, um, and uh, I'm always incredibly excited and warmed when we have females who started off with that background. And I wanted to ask you, you know, in your view, what do you think the advantages have been of having a technical background um, and, and now being a leader in public transport? I think
1: being a registered professional engineer is just one element of the journey. Um, It taught me the importance of technical capability and planning and design. And it certainly gave me the credibility I needed to be chief engineer in charge of technical and professional staff covering over a dozen core specialist areas. I think one of my most valuable lessons has been to respect all professionals and value their input. It's taught me to listen hard and seek clarity and understanding. And being an engineer has helped me know what questions to ask and it's honed my thinking about creating frameworks for concepts and evaluating risks. But I also went on to study a Masters of Business Administration and a Masters of Environmental Management in Sustainable Development. And I found that these were really useful to add a more strategic perspective to my thinking and focus more on exploring opportunities and synergies. I think it's my commitment to continuous learning and the ability to be flexible that has benefited me the most. I've always been interested in better ways of doing things and new technology. And I've always encouraged my teams to take a risk, have a play and try something new.
0: Yeah, Julie, you've touched on something there around continuous learning, which is certainly a theme that I think has been coming out in the different podcast interviews I've done, where women certainly have invested in themselves uh, and continued that investment in terms of their learning um, and their capabilities. And, And I think that that's so great to hear. I wanted to ask you, so you shared a bit there about, um, you know, some of those steps that you've taken, but what I think is really incredible as well is the journey that you seem to have had within the Department of Transport and Main Roads. I understand you have been in the department for over 20 years and you've built a very successful career there. And and as you've said, you report to the Director General, Neil Scales, and, and certainly one of the most senior women in the department. And I wanted to ask you, how did you go about building your career within the one organisation.
1: Thanks, Michelle. I started as a graduate um, civil engineer, and I moved around a lot early in my career. I'd spend about two to three years in each position before I moved. And the real benefit of working in a large statewide organisation, like Transport and Main Roads, is that I could change jobs, but not have to change organisations. And for the first 15 years of my career, I worked in all phases of project planning, design, delivery, operations and maintenance. I worked on major projects and in policy and strategy. I also embraced all technical and personal development training and learning opportunities I could find. And I knew that after I had a solid um, foundation, uh, I looked out for opportunities and seized them or asked for them um, often moving sideways and at level And my priority was always to do great, challenging work. Um, Before becoming the Deputy Director General, I was Chief Engineer for eight years. And this position is the highest level engineering position in Transport and Main Roads. And being Chief Engineer meant leading and managing the Engineering and Technology um, Division with 340 professional technical and support staff in specialist areas of road design, structures, asset management, hydraulics, geospatial operations, traffic pavements, geotechnical and materials and testing. And the branch is responsible for developing all technical guidelines and specifications, training, occupational groups, and importantly, um, resolving complex technical issues statewide. As I was more of a generalist rather than a specialist, the job of chief engineer was not a position that I had aspired to, but it is a position that I was offered and I grew to really love. And it was the position where, for the first time, I had an organisation-wide influence and impact and I had the opportunity to form a relationship with the CEO. So seeing all positions as learning opportunities is really the key to staying relevant. And being resilient is also key. Um, I faced um, roadblocks, including sexism, but it's how I bounced back from these that I think can define me.
0: Julie, thanks so much for sharing those insights and being so honest and transparent about your journey through the ranks at Department of Transport and Main Roads, which many of us know as TMR. So I wanted to ask you, I mean, obviously you've had such an incredible career there. There must've been some moments or initiatives or projects that you've been involved with or led um, that you're very proud of. And so I wanted to ask you, you know, looking back, what are you most proud of in terms of the work that you've led and delivered at TMR?
1: Sure, Um, I'm really proud of the energy and drive I've given and the work of my teams on quite a few things. Um, Some examples include really pushing to improve road worker safety through innovations and improving the standard of consistency of signing through roadworks. Um, I think the safety of our road workers is is absolutely paramount. And I'm also um, really proud of getting government buy-in for our uh, Queensland transport strategy and for our rail vision in southeast Queensland. Um, one of my favourite projects, though, would probably be the construction of um, the Centenary and Ipswich motorway interchange, um, including the works for the rail extension south to Springfield. That project was nearly a billion dollars and delivered as an alliance, and I was on the alliance leadership team making key strategic decisions to ensure project success. My role as a project director was to provide day-to-day assistance and remove blockages for the alliance manager, and the project was a fantastic experience and brought some of the most difficult challenges and satisfactions of my career. Interestingly, these challenges weren't of a technical nature, but rather the smoothing and reforming of dysfunctional relationships between organisations and and stakeholders. It was relationships that posed um, the extreme risk to project success. And it's really great to be able to travel through a project and show your kids your work.
0: Yeah, I really like that. Thanks, Julie. I appreciate you sharing. And it's actually really important. I think it's something we don't talk about enough. It's actually about how we work with people and the relationships that you build and maintain that are actually so critical to move our people, you know, our city's people around I wanted to now actually circle back to our discussion about public transport, and we know that often it revolves around trends and what's happening on the horizon, but also, you know, some of these trends come and go over time. And I wanted to ask you, given your role is that future focus, have you seen a surge in certain trends? I know you mentioned active transport, but what do you see coming on the horizon?
1: One of the notable trends of the last year has been the increased um, interest in active modes uh, during the pandemic, Um, as most people saw this as a way of of getting around, staying active and doing it in a socially distanced way. Our walking and cycling networks um, have proven to be really popular and resilient during the restrictions, particularly where high quality infrastructure is available. And our key cycling routes experienced a 10 to 20% increase in use over 2019 levels and recreational routes and weekend trips were especially popular. There's also a definite growing interest in the potential of e-bikes as an alternative to cars and our recent research that we did in Queensland um, showed that e-bike riders tend to travel longer distances and to travel to a greater variety of locations. They tend to ride um, uh, more for transport purposes than for recreation and uh, that e-bikes are replacing many trips that would otherwise be done by car. Um, for the first time, um, we've seen walking and cycling routes in Melbourne and Sydney added to the Infrastructure Australia's priority list. Um, this reflects uh, an increased national interest in transport and health benefits of active modes and the positive impacts they can have on livability of communities. Um, We don't know the long-term implications of COVID-19, but we're committed to encouraging increased walking and um, bicycle riding. And and the Queensland government's committed over $240 million towards bike riding infrastructure planning and programs and um, into walking initiatives across the state over the next
0: four years. Julie, you certainly have touched on you know, what we see to be a huge global trend. And it's incredible now the amount of investment actually that's going into infrastructure to enable active modes. Um, and certainly it's something we're very excited about in the UITP network because we see walking and cycling um, and shared mobility options is certainly part of the broader public transport umbrella, um, which will support sustainable cities. And obviously we look at every transport mode um, except for, the single private vehicle user. Um, I wanted to ask you if you could indulge me, actually, given your background and, you know, we're talking about the future trends, but obviously we're all working within the constraints and parameters of legacy systems of, of transport networks that may have been designed actually for cities and regions where um, those designers and planners might never have foreseen the population actually that we have uh, and the way that we now move around. And so I wanted to ask you, it's a bit of a hypothetical question, but as an engineer and a transport planner, I'd love to know if you could design a network from scratch, what would it feature?
1: Um, I would focus on designing a system that was integrated with land use and then influence the land use to benefit from the heavily invested transport system. Ideally, though, people would uh, walk or cycle to work and travel demand would be reduced through people working at home or at distributed centres. And um, all people would have attractive opportunities for human-to-human connection and support in their local communities um, them not having to rely on going to work as, uh, as a source of that connection. Um, the system would have a mass transit backbone, probably underground. Um, it would be highly reliable on time operations, absolutely key, with fast inter-regional connections. And it would have a strong focus on interoperability and interchange of modes with seamless connections for customers. Of course, um, legibility and accessibility of the system for the user would be a priority. I think a real key would be um, to design a transport system that communicates with operators so that mobility and travel demand and behavior is monitored in real time. So operations could be optimized and real-time personalized valuable information could be provided to customers.
0: That's an incredible vision and I actually get really excited when you talk about personalization of journeys and using data and real-time information um, to help customers on their journeys. And I've got to say, actually, the vision that you set out right at the start of our interview very much aligns with what your preferred you know, future network would be, right, if you could design it from scratch. I mean, as I said, we're obviously working within the constraints and parameters of what networks we have, but it's very exciting to hear the future vision for the transport network in Queensland that you set out at the start of the episode but also to see how that develops so I just wanted to say Julie thanks so much for sharing that transport perspective I know many people in the audience will be very interested to hear it I wanted to now ask I've got a couple of questions left they're actually the standard questions I ask at the end of our interviews and it's about career and also advice as well so my first one is about how you plan your career And I wanted to ask specifically around how do you make career choices and do you have a five or 10 year plan?
1: I think one thing COVID has taught us um, is that we can have a plan, uh, but we need to remain flexible in our expectations. And I like to think it's a bit of um, strategic at heart and mixed with agile in action, Um, That means that I keep my strategy aimed at my North Star, which as I said, is um, great engaging work, usually with great people, and um, my longer term aspirations of um, moving forward in my career. But I need to be prepared to change every day and um, see what opportunities just come along. But you can't plan for those opportunities, you just need to see what comes along. I'm always on the lookout for a new challenge.
0: Yeah. Thanks for sharing, Julie. It's really interesting because when I ask that question, I get always such different responses, but certainly another theme that I think comes out very strongly is the concept of seizing the opportunities when they come along and they might not have been an opportunity that you initially would have thought about. Right. So that's great to hear. Um, For my last question. So I wanted to ask for our listeners out there who might be early on in their careers in public transport, what advice would you have for them?
1: I'd say be active in your career. Uh, Don't wait for someone to knock on your door and tell you um, how to do something. Go and ask questions and work it out. Take every opportunity to get broad experience and attend training that's made available to you. Um, Step out of your comfort zone and seize opportunities as they're presented. If you're being overlooked, ask for opportunities. And it's really key not to assume that your supervisor knows you're ambitious or that you have aspirations to move up in the organization. It's vital that you tell them, they're not mind readers. And um, advice that is not often given, but pretty basic is um, delight your boss with great work. They'll be your referees when it comes time to move to a new job. And uh, my last piece of advice would be to to surround yourself with people who will support you and give you good counsel.
0: Well, that's great advice, Julie. It's great advice for everyone, actually, to think about. So thank you so much for sharing. Really appreciate your wisdom. It's been incredibly interesting to talk to you today. And I just wanted to say thanks so much for sharing a bit about yourself, your career, and also the transport priorities in Queensland with the Women Who Move Nations audience. So thanks again for your time. Thanks very much, Michelle. You've been listening to Julie Mitchell, the Deputy Director General of Policy, Planning and Investment at the Department of Transport and Main Roads in Queensland. I'm Michelle Batsis, thanks for joining me. Thank you to everyone for listening to this week's episode of Women Who Move Nations. This series is co-produced by Cassandra Kadelka and Lara Rudd with copywriting by Sophia Dickinson. Please join us each week as we raise the voices of women in the public transport and mobility sector. I'm Michelle Batsis. Keep safe and keep our nations moving.